welcome to episode 125 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast. We are coming to you, as always, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, America's only institution of legal education where vaping in the faculty lounge is actually compulsory. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, as well as an understudy in a cruise ship production of Rent, and I am joined, as always, by the Edison and Tesla of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in Bush administration. All right, fellas, well, this is an inter-Aegean episode of the podcast. We are taking the rare step of recording this on a Sunday evening because this was the only window we had between when I returned from Greece and when John departs for Greece. And I know what you're thinking. And yes, we are laying the predicate for a bespoke small batch law talk branded Uzo. So and we're also going to, I'm going to recite an ode to a Grecian urn. <laughs> so, God. Come, come this time next year, you will be able to pick up Epstein and use Greek fire wherever fine spirits are sold. Oh, we're going to uh, be in Greece, my wife and I, come this summer. So, so everyone, everybody, oh, we just uh, that in great discussion. Yes, I warned them. Well, I mean, but John, you might be stopped at the border. Your ideas are too dangerous. I, I agree. <laughs> Actually, Greece, Greece could use some of Richard's ideas in particular. But, uh, John, you are going somewhere that I, I wasn't. You're going to be in Crete, and this purports to be a work trip. So yes. if it's only to rile up the populace a little bit, can you pull back the curtain on the world of law professor junketeering to Crete for work? You make it seem so inappropriate somehow, but th that's only going to make me enjoy my ouzo even more as I drink it on the beach okay. and okay. chew Explain on yourself. raw that's octopus. That's inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, going to a conference on maritime borders. <laughs> so to do one this on maritime borders, you have to have these conferences in islands where there are border disputes, and there's a lot of them in the Mediterranean. So I need to be there really close. And then I'm going to go to Athens and go visit the Acropolis, which I've never been to, even though I can read ancient Greek. I've never been there. Is so that that's, You actually read ancient Greek? Oh, yeah. I, had, I went to one of those schools where I was required to learn Latin and Greek. Four years of Greek is six years of Latin. Oh, my God. <laughs> See, I could actually. I don't know whether I'm a professor or the Roman part of Roman law. I saw Richard did a podcast all on Roman law. Yes. And then it may, remember, so it made you, me change my subject. Remember, we were talking about what subject <laughs> in school did you. By the way, and I did it on Roman repair. And then, and you know, I would say Roman law, but I didn't take it. But if I had taken it, I would have hated it the most. I note that you say you saw Richard did this podcast, which <laughs> implicit in that is that you did not listen to it. Oh, no, I listened. You guys were both talking about Roman law. It's a, it's a very easy way to pass the time in the gym listening to Richard's <laughs> libertarian thoughts. So, it makes me when I listen to Richard's Libertarian podcast at the gym, I don't put my weights back. <laughs> <laughs> so can I I'll I'll give you a pointer, John, since you since you've never been to have you never been to Greece before or just never been to Athens? Oh, I've never been to Greece at all. I've been to Italy plenty of times, but never uh, never Greece. Okay, so here's here's what I'll tell both of you as you prepare for your respective Greek journeys, Odysseys, some might say. Um, it's a lovely country. 
gorgeous. The food's great. The people are nice. But I will say this. Having spent a couple of weeks there, I feel like I now have a deep understanding of the psychology that led the Germans to take such a hard line during their financial crisis because the money part of that was surely just an epiphenomenon. All you needed was a critical mass of German elites trying to take a holiday in Greece because you could not create an algorithm that could improve upon the Greek lifestyle's ability to trigger a German. You go to Greece, and it is clear that all of life is an improvisation for them. When flights are going to leave, when trains are going to arrive, how much something costs, when a store is going to open, it's all a function of what kind of day someone is having. Just like the Germans, right? If Just you like Plato. are a control freak, then going to Greece is a form of immersion therapy. So, John, you'll be fine. It's just like the rest of your life. I'm going to thrive in this environment. What are you talking about? I'm looking forward to it. I'm coming back a richer man. I know it. <laughs> so now we know double form of corruption. Uzo on the beach and more money in the pocket. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, as long as the valet. <laughs> this time around. Uh, we probably have to start with the Ukraine story. So we, we've learned recently that there was a complaint from within the American intelligence community filed with the inspector general over a conversation that President Trump had with a foreign head of state. Subsequent reporting has claimed that this was over a call with the new Ukrainian president and that President Trump was trying to get the Ukrainians to pursue an investigation of, of Joe Biden's son, Hunter, who was on the board of a Ukrainian energy company. And, the, and there are allegations of corruption in his capacity there. And there are further suggestions that the president was perhaps conditioning American assistance to Ukraine on that cooperation. Now, we should stipulate that we are at the mercy of the media reporting here. There was a complaint to the inspector general's office. But the acting director of national intelligence has not turned it over to Congress. So everything we know is pretty much via the newspaper reporting. Stipulating all that, uh, there has been a lot of talk that if this is true, if the president was essentially looking for a quid pro quo that would help him against a potential political rival, that this is more clearly an impeachable offense than anything else that has occurred during Trump's tenure. Uh, Richard, what's your view on that proposition? It does not sound like a high crime and misdemeanor to me. I mean, one of the things that always happens is that presidents engage in all sorts of handling in foreign affairs, and sometimes they make requests, sometimes not. You're never quite sure since you don't have the tapes exactly what was said. Uh, we did hear something from the uh, Ukrainians themselves, which said that no undue pressure was put upon them. Uh, these conversations take place all the time. Hunter was already in play because of his involvement with what had happened in Ukraine. Uh, so what's happened is the Democrats, having fizzled with respect to Robert Mueller, um, now seem to be going on this particular track, and I think it's odd. If this is sufficient in order to get you impeachment, then there should be massive criminal indictments with respect to everybody who was involved in all of the issues um, associated uh, with the various reports that were submitted in an effort to um, uh, get, uh, shall we say, all the people, the steel dossier and everything else, because all of that stuff was clearly intended to influence stuff. And it wasn't just a casual phone call. There were uh, basically warrants that were requested on the strength the bogus information, lots of concealment, clear allegations that this thing went up the ladder, and a complete fizzle job by Mr. Mueller in trying to explain why it is that there was something wrong with what Trump had done under the circumstances, and a lot of investigations going on about what was done wrong by the Democrats under this particular situation. 
I'm not inclined to make these political issues into impeachable offenses. And the Democrats have said this so often on so many different issues. I think it's really a, a bit of plying, crying wolf. And probably in a day or two, this will be gone. And then there'll be some other heinous offense that will go after Trump. I think the advice to give to the Democrats, if they want to beat him, they have to beat him at the polls. And I frankly don't think uh, the way they're going, they're going to be able to do that. Seem, they seem to have an instinct for petty aggrandizements and self-destruction, which is second to none. They really have to clean up their act. John, how does that square with your view? I actually disagree with Richard on the impeachment issue, but it really depends what happened. But before getting to that, I want to just talk a little bit about the inspector general issue, because I think it's been quite misunderstood in the public. So uh, I actually think that uh, the, pr the president or the White House, whoever's making the decision on this is right, that they don't have to turn over this information to Congress. One is because of the way the law is written, and one is just because of constitutional principles. Uh, the way the law is written is this is a complaint, allegedly, this, as Troy, you said, this is all coming from rumors in newspapers. Mm -hmm. This is a complaint that's brought out by some intelligence community agent who don't know who it could even be like just the guy who runs the situation room microphone system, you know, transmission system or something. So he claims he overheard president say something on a phone call. Say it's the worst that people have suggested that Trump says, if you, uh, Ukraine, help me get dirt on my likely presidential nominee uh, opponent in the next election, I will release $250 million in military and foreign aid to Ukraine. Say it's as bad as that. The first thing is, the inspect so this intelligence agent gives that to the inspector general of what's called the National Intelligence Directorate. Now, that statute can't apply to the president because the president uh, doesn't work for the director of national intelligence. He's above it. This guy who's in charge of it, Joe McGuire, works for the president. It's not the other way around. The inspector general can't investigate the president. It's just statutorily, just if you read what the statute says, it only applies to people and activities of the intelligence community. So just, I think actually the administration is just right as a matter of what the statute says. But suppose the statute did apply. Suppose it also included the president and his uh, activities as part of what this inspector general fellow could look into. Then I think it's unconstitutional. I don't think... Uh, one of the key things is that the president is in charge of communication with foreign countries. That doesn't mean he can just – anything he says is okay, but it does mean, I think, that Congress can't just say, I feel like we want to see everything the president says with other countries. It just I, I think that's unconstitutional, interferes with the president's right to conduct foreign policy. So I don't think Congress can use a law like the Inspector General law to sort of interrupt or interpose itself or just call in like on a speakerphone and say, what if, they, what if Congress said, pass a law saying, we think Congress should listen in on every phone call between the president and a foreign country? I would think that'd be unconstitutional too. So I, but I, but the, the, the where I disagree with Richard is I do think that if you take the facts and say, we say in the laws, construe them in the light most unfavorable to the president, president, most favorable, construe them in the light most favorable to the complainant. The president was saying, I'm not going to release money unless you investigate you know, my likely presidential opponent. 
I think that's an impeachable offense, or at least con- I think that's. Yeah, I do. I think that's. If if it really were like that, now it seems to me, it probably wasn't like that. <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, I just I can't believe Trump would do that. But if he did do that, I think Congress could look into it because uh, that's very similar to the kind of things they were worried about back at the time of the framing, where. Uh, for example, one of the things they talked about when they talked about the impeachment clause, they'd say, what's a high crime and misdemeanor? And they would say, well, remember when Louis XIV was paying off King Charles not to intervene in the wars on the continent? They'd say that would be a high crime and misdemeanor. This is kind of like that, right? The, someone is using the powers of the executive for personal gain and getting mixed up with foreign countries. Uh, I could see, I could see that. Being sim- I could see Congress legitimately saying that's a high crime and misdemeanor. But it turns out in this particular situation, suppose it's already a topic on the table that you have to discuss one way or the other. Uh, that seems to me to kind of dull the situation. I agree with you, John, that you could find a way to make this thing so utterly ugly uh, that you could uh, try to say that it's essentially, well, it's not an obstruction of justice case, but I guess it could be regarded. No, no it's not obstruction. One. Yeah, not well, obstruction. Why is it not obstruction? Well, I don't think this is a case like the Mueller report, where this is a guy. You know, this is you know, in the Mueller report, President Trump's not telling people to destroy evidence. He's not telling people to, right? To, he's not tampering with witnesses. I think this is more like the president just abusing his power for his own gain. It's not obstruction of justice. He's just you know, saying, you know, he's trying to get foreign powers to help him out in a presidential campaign. I think it might be obstruction of justice if it turns out that what you're trying to do is to get him to file reports that are false uh, with various American authorities to get them to initiate an investigation. Uh, But, I mean, given what has been said thus far about it, in which there's been any denial of the effort to pressure the president on the part of the Ukrainian, um, I I think it's a pretty thin kind of case. Look, I mean, I am second to nobody in in the ability of Trump's ability to, to basically create useless controversies by acting in inappropriate fashion. But I just don't think on the strength of this particular record, there's enough uh, to go forward with this situation. And I do think there's a real risk that the, def- the Democrats have so many impeachable offenses that they're trying to generate uh, that this simply gets uh, diminished in its ability by virtue of the fact that they are uh, essentially stretching the entire concept so far uh, that simply remaining in office by Trump turns out to be close to an impeachable yeah. offense. I, I, agree. I would agree with you, Rich. If you read the press accounts closely... There is no one who actually says they heard him saying, oh, if you help me with Biden, I'll release the money. People, it's just innuendo by the press. They say, oh, he had this conversation, and then a few weeks later, Trump released the money. But he should have released the money anyway. <laughs> like yeah. the legal, like the, I mean, the, the right policy was to allow, give money to the Ukraines to help them fight off the Russians. So yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. You have to say it's just the worst possible rumors and facts were true. Maybe it's impeachment. But I don't, see, I agree with you. I don't see the facts. I mean, I would say it would be much more deadly if it turns out that he doesn't release the money when he thinks it's official duty to do so. Uh, but if it turns out he releases the money because of the uh, sense that it's his obligation, uh, then you've got a dual motive question saying, did he do it because of that or did he do it because of the uh, effort on the other part of the Ukrainians to do something? As best I can tell, by the way, nothing was followed up on this. So um, it seems to me that this is a little bit like uh, Trump banging at his various guys, his assistants, and saying, oh, I wish you would rid me of this man. Why don't you do something? And of course, none of them do anything. Um, 
so I, again, I think that you have to get some more, not only more consensus, but some more public events that follow in the strength of it. And, and you start putting in this detail, which I wasn't aware of, that there were weeks between the two events. I think that further weakens the case that there's any direct connection between a so-called threat on the one hand and the release of the money on the other. All right, fellas, I'll take you over to foreign policy now, because since our last broadcast, we've had a major Iranian drone strike on Saudi oil infrastructure. That temporarily cut the Saudis' capacity for oil production by about half. This is a big move by the Iranians, almost certainly catalyzed by how much of a bite our sanctions regime is having over there. And we're now, as of the day that we're recording this, we're sending a modest contingent of troops and air defenses to Saudi Arabia, basically in a defensive capacity. Um John, I'll start with you on this. How should we be thinking about this? I mean, Iran is surely one of our bigger adversaries in the world, but Saudi Arabia is a fairly unsavory ally. Where do we locate American interests here, and what should that dictate in terms of how we proceed? So, again, there's a policy question and a legal question. I think as a matter of policy, you know, Iran is clearly our opponent in the Middle East. They have been responsible for the killing of hundreds of American soldiers, starting all the way back at the Beirut barracks bombings, and then their support and supply of insurgents in Iraq during the Iraq wars. Uh, They've already shot down American drones. I think they've been responsible for a consistent, decades-long campaign against the United States and our allies in the region. Now, you're right. uh, The Saudis are not the... (laughs) You know, the leading lights of democracy and capitalism and human rights in the world, or even in that part of the world. But, you know, they are our allies and we share strategic interests. Uh, you know, Iran is a disruptor. They are trying to, they're called, you know, in political science, called a revisionist power. They are trying to overturn the kind of stable order that we've tried to put in place around the world. So I think that we just have, as a policy matter, a lot of interests that are directly opposed to what Iran wants to do, which is to essentially replace all the regimes in the Middle East with revolutionary Shiite Islamic <clears throat> regimes like their own. Uh, given that's the case, then the, the second question is just, what should we do about this? So one one reflection of what's going on here is, is a reflection of the maximum sanctions policy that the Trump administration has imposed, starting by pulling out of the Iranian arms deal and then all the various embargoes, financial embargoes have been put on place in Iran, and an embargo on oil. Uh, this is really creating the Iranian economy. It's a very strange strategy Iran's using in a way. It's sort of similar to North Korea's. It is, uh, we demand that you play and make nice with us. If you don't play and make nice with us, we're going to keep kicking you. It's a very strange strategy to try to make friends in the world. But it's, this, it's actually a sign, I think, of desperation. Uh, and so, so it's an odd way it shows that the Trump administration's uh, policies are working here. So the, the third question is, and what do we do about this latest attack on the Saudi oil fields? Uh, you know, I think John Bolton was right. I think his firing was a mistake. If one of the reasons for the firing was that uh, Bolton wanted some kind of retaliatory strike after our, you know, our, our drone, which is not a little drone, it was the size of a 737, this drone. The shooting down of the American drone required some kind of retaliatory response. The fact that we didn't uh, has only encouraged the Iranians. And so you can see everything they're doing, they're testing us a little bit more, a little bit more, right? They didn't attack 
an American facility. They could have tried. They didn't kill any Americans. They could have tried, right? They, but they carried out a major attack on the Saudis, and they're trying to, you know, create a lot of economic instability. So I, I say, as a policy matter, I think the United States, at least the Saudis, who are well supplied by us, should respond with our help. And if they can't do it, maybe we should think about it. Uh, legally, there's an interesting legal question here, which actually the Reagan administration faced the last time the Iranians were uh, doing things like this, which when they were sinking tankers in the Gulf of Hormuz. Uh, uh, although I don't think it's a legal barrier, but you hear uh, Democrats saying this right now, is that the United States cannot use force against Iran because we're not acting in our self-defense. We'd only be helping an ally of ours. If we're only helping an ally of ours, we have no right uh, to go to war. I, I mean, I think that is a that is not uh, has never really been American policy or law. But you see this argument being made now. And if that were true, we would become the most unreliable ally <laughs> in the world, and nobody would ever trust us again if the United States starts. And, I, and it might appeal to Trump's sort of isolationist instincts, or you say we're only going to use force when the United States or its own. Uh, our own people are attacked, but if, like, the Russians invade Germany, have at it. Right? If, the, if the Iranians and Iraqs invade Israel, fine. You know, we're, we're not going to use force unless uh, our, own, our own individual self-defense is at stake. And I, but I think that's a—but it shows how far, I think, to the left that the Democratic Party is uh, moving. This is not the party of Clinton. That's not even the party of Obama. Uh, you know, who used force in Syria uh, against you know, Iranian-backed. Yeah, so I, I, it is an interesting sign of how, how pacifist the Democratic Party is becoming in their effort to just oppose anything Trump thinks might be a good idea. Richard, I was overseas when this happened and was surprised by how often I heard the American defense of Saudi Arabia characterizes, well, you know, the U.S., they'll just go wherever the oil is. But that is an argument that has been unthawed from about 15 years ago. The politics of hydrocarbons are way, way different than they used to be. And an awful a lot of that owes to, to changes in the American economy. Can you sort of walk us through how the changes in domestic energy production have changed the way that we think about the foreign policy dimensions of these kinds of fights in, in oil exporting countries? I'll start with that, if you'd like. Uh, for many, many years, it turned out we had a general policy that the United States uh, could not export raw oil, crude oil overseas. And so what we did is we had a real limitation. We also had no fracking kinds of capacities. But in the last 20 years, the United States has become probably the most powerful oil-producing or gasoline-producing nation in the world. And our capacity seems to be moving up, 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 while everybody else is relatively stagnant. Uh, so, we, didn't we just, Richard, just in the last this year become the largest producer we are in now the world. we're number yeah. one we're number one, but more importantly than that is USA, not where USA. Go, go, go. It's not that we're just number That's one. That's always it's going on in the background at my house. I just <laughs> The trend line is extremely favorable in this regard. Um, the biggest problem that we have in the United States is not the production of oil. It's actually the pipelines that get this oil to places where it's needed or to the coast where it can be shipped overseas in these large tankers. Uh, but the balance of power on this thing has completely changed because not only is the United States producing a large amount now, but its capability for expansion of production is also very, very high. And so what happens is if you put the Saudis out, if anything, uh, the American interest may now be in C 
seeing them out of commission because then we could command a larger share of the market and get higher prices for our own products. That was not the situation uh, when the United States was an importing nation dependent very heavily on oil from overseas, including that which went through the Gulf of Hormuz. So uh, the whole basic situation has completely changed under these circumstances in terms of oil production. But the issue with respect to Iran is less, I think, with respect to oil production than it is with respect to stability in the Middle East. Um, Iran is a sworn enemy of Israel. Iran is a sworn enemy of Saudi Arabia. Iran is engaged in destabilization activities. It supports Hamas. It supports Hezbollah. It supports just about everybody whom we're against, and it does so more or less with impunity in the sense that nobody has taken any after them. Uh, the extreme democratic position that you started to mention is truly bombing. Uh, all of NATO rests upon the assumptions that the United States and the other allies will come to aid of each other in the event of an invasion until the United Nations gets its act together, which today means never. And essentially, if you take that particular provision, the Democrats are sounding like the isolationist Rand Paul, and NATO is in fact a dead ladder. Who knows whether they believe this or not, or whether it's opportunistic, but as a general statement, it's the most alarming thing that you could possibly imagine. Now, Trump also, I think, has made a serious mistake. The only way in which you can be credible in a threat is to announce that you're going to respond at some point with the use of force when faced with the use of force. If you announce that every time there's a use of force, you'll engage in negotiation, they'll continue to pummel you and they'll continue to negotiate in Stonewall. The sanctions, I think, really do matter with respect to the financial stuff, but it certainly won't stop this kind of behavior. And so you put it to Again, suppose you don't overlook the drone shoot down. That was a $125 million drone. Suppose you overlook the disruption of the uh, Saudi facilities, which is probably in the billions of dollars. They do it again to Saudi Arabia. Are we still going to sit there? Uh, are we going to say you can do it but not help them? Uh, the last thing the United States wants to do is to have a Saudi attack on Iran, which fails, Iran, which fails because there's no Americans to back it up. So I think, in effect, sooner or later, you're going to have to recognize that the only way you can stop force is to meet it with respect to force. And then the question is just how much do you want to use and how much publicity you want to give it. One of the things that you can do is you start to attack their oil facilities, create a shortage on the other side, depriving them of their key sources, and rely on the American uh, fracking industry to basically take up the shortfall in the world supplies. Another thing you could do on the occasion is to get one of those deep bombs and try to take out perhaps some of the nuclear powers that are exploding there. The Israelis have a policy, which I think understands it. They do a lot of things, and they don't talk about any of them. Uh, it's known on the other side that they've engaged in aggressive action, but they don't commit themselves to a public statement as to why and how they're doing it. I do think, in effect, that if Trump sticks to his isolationist impulses, it's going to be a very, very bad thing. The only way to avoid, ultimately, the use of force is to have a credible threat that you want to use it. And a person who was in 2016 attacked as a reckless madman turns out, if anything, to be a bit too cautious in the way he wants to use force. And as John said, and as the Wall Street Journal said, uh, John Bolton may not be perfect, but you certainly need somebody in the White House who's going to counter the impulses of pacifism, which I think will take over the president. Uh, Obama got into serious trouble, not because he used too much force in Syria, but because when the red line was crossed, he did absolutely nothing, resulting in the slaughter of lots of people and the uptake of Russian dominance in that particular area. Passivity is not going to work in a world where everybody else is willing to use force, and you are not. Neutering yourself, I don't think, in the long run is a way to create peace on the one hand or international stability on the other.
John, can you give us a kind of strategic hierarchy for how we think about foreign policy threats right now? So you've got Iran, which is dominating the headlines at the moment, but you've also got this ongoing struggle with China. You've got Russian revanchism. You've got North Korea, which we've all sort of forgotten about for the past few weeks. There's still a big argument over whether and how we pull out of Afghanistan. All that to say, the administration is spinning a lot of plates right now. How ought they to think about prioritizing those different problems? You sort of describe how a strategist thinks about it, which may be a little uh, – I'll put some order to it. I'm not saying this is the way the Trump administration thinks about it, but if they were uh, – you know, if you were in a classroom or in a you know military camera, what, the, what they would do is they say the number one uh, threat you keep your eye on is – uh, global competitors, you know, what they call strategic competitors. So right now, that really is only China. And China isn't actually at our level, but they're clearly the rising power. And so strategists will probably, these they always like to reason by historical analogy, which is not necessarily the best way to make decisions. But, you know, they would probably compare that to uh, the relationship between Britain and Germany before World War One, where Britain was the uh, larger, more powerful country. Uh, had been for you know basically the most powerful country for about a century maybe, uh, but Germany because of its economic growth is rising fast, just like China. People worry, uh, and also that Germany was accumulating military capabilities uh, in all spectrums that were challenging Great Britain, and so you could say China is uh, already the may already be the dominant regional power in Asia. But they're doing things to try to extend their reach around the world, not just in their region. And so that would be, our, just like in the Cold War, our major strategic competitor was the Soviet Union. Then, the, you know, then there, there are, um, I think what they would say, what strategists would say is that then you have regional threats. So Iran would be a regional threat. Iran is no threat to American uh, dominance in the world order. Iran, though, can cause a lot of trouble in its region. So you could say Iran is one such a country. North Korea is such a country. These are countries that are trying to cause trouble, disrupt the sort of settled way of doing things in a specific region. Uh, so, yeah, and Afghanistan is another example of that. So you would say, look, we've always got, in long term, we've got to pay attention to China, make sure we've got to comprehensive strategy toward China. I'm not sure we have one. The things like Iran, North Korea, uh, Afghanistan, Syria, these are all regional problems. They're not as important as China, but they still, we have things at stake in those regions that are you know, worth uh, settling. Uh, you, know, I, you know, the thing that we would ideally like is just no change. So the thing they say about the United States as in strategy is that we're what they call a status quo power, we would prefer that just nothing change. <laughs> Think about the Middle East. Uh, Syria, this is a part of goes to what Richard and I were talking about before. Iran has pursued a strategy of trying to upset things in the Middle East, and they've done a pretty good job of it. I mean, look at the map today, and they have, over 30 to 40 years, leveraged a lot of their power and has succeeded in really attacking their Shiite enemies. I mean, they've, they've now, and this is what Israel has wrote about, they've pretty much got a, if you look at the map, they kind of have a, a route or a, um, a tunnel almost that goes from Iran through Iraq, through Syria to Lebanon. 
uh, you know, this they are they they are very successful at what they've been doing, and they are direct threat to us, but only in that region. So that's that's how strategists would look at the prioritize the problems. I might half agree with John and half disagree with him. Um, I think that the first thing the United States has to do is to recognize that if it's going to be able to deal with both global and regional threats, it has to increase the size and the scope of its military capability. Now, right now, the budget is too low relative to the threats that we have to face. And the thing that I worry about most is that it turns out that if we are preoccupied with one of these particular battles, it may well be that this will be the opportunity for somebody else in one of these other reasons to mount a second attack on us. And I don't think that the United States at this particular point is strong enough militarily to fight two major engagements in two separate fronts, say one in the China Sea and one in the Middle East. And the second thing I would say is the term regional has got to be put in quotation marks. Um, if you're talking about the Middle East, you've got millions of people there. The Israeli survival will depend upon the United States support. The disruption of the oil supply can still be great. The military instability and the mass slaughter that can take place and places like Iran and Afghanistan and so forth are very, very great. And I don't think that one ought to try to minimize that uh, wholesale bloodshed that's likely to take place by saying it's only a regional struggle. And then as you start to look elsewhere around the globe, but you still have to remember that the NATO issue is very much alive and that Lord knows what the Russians will do next, given the fact that they chopped off a little bit of uh, Ukraine several years ago without some kind of uh, retaliation. I think that the United States essentially has decided that it's going to withdraw from the world that the European nations are too flaccid to do anything major to protect themselves, and that the only strong powers that are coming up, every one of them without exception, turns out to be people who are genuinely hostile uh, to the way in which the United States starts to operate. So I would start with the fundamentals, uh, but the pacifist impulses in Congress, given what the House of Representatives is about, means that it's very, very difficult to do something. Trump himself, I think, is kind of weak on these issues. Uh, the departure of Bolton and of Jim Mattis both of whom I, I think understand the need for the use of force, even if they differ in their willingness to use it in any particular case, represents a, a clear blow. So um, I agree with John. First things first, you have to deal with the Chinese situation. You have to understand that they're a rising power. Uh, but uh, what happens is if you have to devote all your resources to that, the other problems that you're going to face are going to become larger and larger, and we're going to have less and less satisfactory responses to it. I think that the change in domestic American policy will lead to a serious deterioration in our foreign position overseas, just it's going to dem demonstrate the difficulties that we have at home. I think that Trump, in many ways, is a very imperfect president, to put it mildly, but I regard the democratic alternatives on foreign policy and everything else as virtually catastrophic today. Either they're weak like in Biden who doesn't really know what he's doing, or they're just downright mischievous and misinformed uh, like the other leading candidates. All right, guys. So last week was Constitution Day when we celebrate the signing of the Constitution and reflect on the majesty of our legal system. And, and the Trump administration, in an attempt to reflect that majesty, recently announced that in keeping with the founders' intent, they are going to be using the full force of the federal government to make sure that people can't vape mango-flavored jewel pods. Um, I'm fully radicalized on this issue. So earlier this month, the president announced that the White House and the FDA are planning to remove flavored e-cigarettes and nicotine pods from the market. This is partially it's because it's about time. <laughs> this is this is partially just to because, cut you off. Just to <laughs> cut you off. <laughs> Troy Senate hardest hit. This is partially because 
there has been a, a smallish outbreak of lung disease from vaping, although it seems to be primarily and maybe even exclusively from black market products that involve THC. There's also a concern about youth consumption of these products and that it can be a gateway for conventional cigarette smoking. Uh, you've seen some states making similar moves on getting rid of the flavored products and others talking about it. And Richard, the, the first question that some of our listeners may have is how it is that a fairly sweeping prohibition on something like this can come unilaterally out of the executive branch. What's the answer to that question? Well, I mean, it's a long and complicated answer, but essentially there was a famous case called Brown and Williamson decided around 2000 and so, in which it was held that the definition of drug that existed underneath the Pure Food and Drug Act did not include tobacco. And everybody regarded that, I think, in the end as probably a right decision, but the predicate thereafter was, but by the way, you can pass a statute which will allow the FDA to regulate tobacco, and Congress responded uh, several years later with the statute which did precisely that. Uh, so at this particular point, there's no question about statutory authority because the defect that it existed under the original one has been fully cured, and the current regulations are pretty powerful. Uh, they give you special control over youth products, which is one of the things here. Flavored cigarettes are certainly covered. Health issues are generally covered. An ability to require extensive warnings, maybe even to kill the entire product, is surely welcome as well. Uh, so there's no question about the question about the issue as to whether or not they have it. The hard question is, what do you want to do with this thing? And it's a very complicated issue because, as you mentioned, THC, which is an active ingredient in marijuana, I gather, I'm not a big expert on this particular stuff, is the source of what's happened here. And the complaints are that you use one of these capsules or tubes, empty it out of its original products, and then fill it with something which is completely corrupt. And that's what causes the damage. If this were a straight product liability action against the drug companies that make this like Juul, they would be very, very difficult suits to win, not impossible. Uh, the plaintiffs would say it was foreseeable that these kinds of mishaps would happen, and therefore you have to guard them. The defendants would say, look at what the third party does, and by the way, how do you guard against this particular type of situation? It's no more possible to do that than it is to guard against knifings by making knives with dull blades, uh, simply because somebody could use them uh, to kill another person. Uh, so what happens is the liability issues are not strict tied to the tort issues, and it is perfectly permissible under the current law to say, even if the tort issues are fuzzy, we can do this. So I have no question that if it's just a matter of first order statutory power, uh, that it's likely that the uh, the FDA is going to prevail over its competitors against the charge that they've been confiscatory with respect to the industry. The problem is, does it make any sense? And you can't do a judgment like that if you only look at these e-cigarettes and these various other vaping products and look at the harms from their misuse without organizing or understanding the benefits from their use. And this goes two ways. There are many people who quit smoking because they're able to use this as a transitional vice to get out of it. And uh, it's certainly clear that with respect to convention, kinds of risks associated with heart disease and lung disease and the like. Uh, the e-cigarettes, I think, are much, much safer than anything else. And so if you're trying to figure out what the social judgment is, how do you take into account losses from misuse as against the gains from proper use associated with these products? And at this point, I'm not persuaded that one should withdraw them. I think that a more sensible situation would be to put warnings out, pointing out the dangers of this particular situation, and perhaps asking the various drug manufacturers 
manufacturers or the e-cigarette manufacturers to see if they can redesign their various products so that they're not refillable with much more dangerous stuff. So at this particular point, I mean, indignation is easy to come by, and I start to think of the vaping as a little bit like the guns. Uh, these are both problems in which there's obviously serious abuse, uh, but the proposed solutions may, at least in these cases, be worse than the disease. John, for vaping who- doesn't kill people. People kill people. <laughs> oh wait, wrong, wrong device. Well, uh, for people who think that the government is overreaching here, should they have hold out any hope that they might get bailed out in the courts, or is this purely a political fight at this point? I I actually am more libertarian about this than Richard. I knew it would finally happen. <laughs> finally, but I don't Good see you, that people get to recover at all. For any harm that gets caused by vaping or cigarettes. I mean, I thought those lawsuits against cigarettes were wrong. People know when they're smoking and vaping, these are not good things for you to do, that you're risking various cancers. They do it with their eyes wide open. And then in this case, Troy, it's even worse because these people take things that are manufactured by the companies, and then they alter them, right? They they put things in them that they were not designed to use. As you said, most it seems like from the reports that the people who are uh, getting these illnesses are because they're using, uh, right, they're using cannabis-laced kinds of, I don't even know what you call them, little, those little capsules. Pods. They're the pods. Them, pods. Right, they're using... Yeah. <laughs> This is a man who knows too much about this. <laughs> I mean, like you know, they are they are they are changing the manufacturer's right creation of them, and then they want to sue. You know, the government or the the consumer wants to sue the manufacturer because they they change the product. I don't. I just think that. So one, I think that's just not. Well, I John, I have to sadly inform. I think they took the moral. They took it on themselves, all the thing, the consequences. They went into it wide open. They knew what they were going to do. They're, the products are working the way they're designed to work, and then they change the products. And, they're not working. and then the second thing is, I, don't, I think it creates a bad incentive, actually, for people who want to make new products. right? So th- this goes to Richard's other point is this product is way safer than the product it's replacing. Right? It's the, the, this is, this is, I take it that deaths from lung cancer are projected to really go down if everyone switched from smoking normal cigarettes to vaping. If your product gets banned and then you're on the hook for billions of dollars because of it, who's going to want to improve products like this in the future? Look, I'm, I will come on comment on this. I actually represented the tobacco companies many, many years ago, and chiefly oh, Philip Morris. That's a, that's a really high libertarian card he's playing on you, John. Yeah, I mean, and you know, and I am a vigorous. I'm the perfect non-smoker. I've never had a puff of cigarettes in my life, and I regard zero as too high a number because I think that stuff is deadly. Um, what happened though is every defense that John raised somehow or other we managed to lose on, at least when it came to the claims that were brought for Medicaid payments. And so the product alteration defense, which used to be perfectly good 50, 60 years ago, has generally been outlawed and overridden with respect to product cases. An assumption of risk has been defined so narrowly that it's not enough to know that you might well die if you smoke, but you have to know precisely what's going to kill you, what the odds are, how it's going to take place. And people have read the defense so narrowly that often it's very, very difficult. Before a jury, we had 
pretty good success in cases that simply involve smokers, um, mainly because juries understood exactly what John said. And so it was very difficult to win a case. But what John is saying is they should have gotten summary judgment. That is, you don't even have to have a trial. It's so clear that we were never able to get. But when the was a maneuver was taken that the uh, Medicaid situation sued independently, they said, for their particular expenses, that's when they absolutely hit a jackpot and get many, many billions of dollars. And then what made it worse is there was a collusive settlement between my then former clients, the tobacco companies, and the plaintiffs, in which what they did is they agreed to impose a tax on all new products coming into the market, which made it very, very difficult to introduce the safer products because they had to bear the tax associated with the previous one. So, John, you're absolutely right about this. The whole tobacco litigation essentially has slowed down the rate of improvement. And just as a matter of historical interest, the period in which there was the greatest reduction of tar and nicotine in cigarettes were the years between roughly 1956 and 1958, when there was a huge amount of advertisements going on with such wonderful spravers as Winston tastes good like a cigarette good and so forth, because that allowed them to introduce filter cigarettes, get them sold, which had much lower tar and nicotine contents with them. So if you looked at the cigarettes from, say, 1950, Lucky Strikes, Old Gold, Paul Mall, and so forth, they were all replaced by safer cigarettes. And even after you put the government warnings on this stuff in the mid-60s, the rate of decline was actually slower than it was when they had the advertisers doing this stuff. So our policy on cigarettes has been really extremely unfortunate. And right now, the status quo ante means that we could save many more lives if we, in fact, undid some of the prohibitions against new entry, including those by e-cigarettes. All right, fellas. Well, California never fails to give us a surplus of fodder. We don't have a ton of time, so I'm going to take you through kind of a lightning round of California-specific things that have come up in the last few weeks. And Richard, I'll start with you. The Trump administration has revoked a waiver that California had, allowing it to set tighter standards for greenhouse gas emissions from vehicle tailpipes in the rest of the country. Thirteen other states also followed it. And now California and a number of other states are suing the administration over that decision. And some conservatives may not know how to feel about this, given how often we invoke federalism and the, and the virtue of allowing states to set their own policies. So how should they think about this? Well, the first thing, of course, is that when you're trying to sell automobiles, you sell them in a national market. They're driven in a national market. And I think it was a serious mistake to turn over the question of how you want to deal with emissions to California when it should be set nationally. Uh, the second point, of course, was somewhat different. It goes the opposite way. Part of the reason why they decided to do things differently in California is years ago, if you lived in Los Angeles, the smoke was so bad and the smog was so terrible that you could barely breathe. I moved out there in 1968, which was slightly past the peak. But if you went to San Marino or Pasadena, you really had a hard time doing it. Uh, the level of pollution in the United States, in California and everything else, is vastly down since that time. And so the sort of special status argument, I think, is no longer particularly powerful. There is also the question about about what kind of standards do you want to use on these things in order to create this stuff and to make it efficient? And it's not at all clear to me that California has set the right standards on this. I'd have to look at it much more closely. Uh, so my view about it is I don't trust them in general on anything having to do with the environment, anything to do with any kind of industry and so forth. And so my presumption is if they want it, I'm against it, which is slightly nihilistic. Uh, but I think it's actually a fairly accurate situation. I think the national standards are probably appropriate 
appropriate. To the extent that they involve cafe standards, I think those things are a terrible mistake. Uh, they should never evaluate pollution based upon what a fleet does, uh, because that forces you to subsidize small cars in order to build large ones. The correct rule is always to tax people on the strength of the emissions of the cars that they produce and not require them to change the composition of their fleet, uh, which reduces all sorts of inefficiencies. So that system should just be completely removed and you should start over. On the legal issue, I did actually look at the complaint that the states filed, and I thought it was really terrible. Uh, what they said is, yes, you gave us the waiver, and you've given us so many times uh, that at this particular point, this is not a waiver. It's absolutely an entitlement. And that just doesn't happen. Yeah, I agree. Rule- the, 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 the state papers are, are, don't even actually really address the statute. And yeah. the fact that they can be the waiver can be taken away. <laughs> I mean, it's just the simplest point, and, and they just go on about how important it is and how long they've enjoyed this preferred situation. Uh, but nobody would want to say that you know this is like adverse possession. The very fact that there's a waiver means that the waiver can be withdrawn. In fact, in these cases, you have to renew them on a periodic basis, which makes it perfectly clear that the entitlements don't allow with the states. So I assume that the lawsuit is a dead loser, and then the question is trying to figure out what the optimal strategy is. And the one point I'd make before I turn it over to John is that environmental measures can be too stringent or too lax. And there's no reason to oppose that, oh, if the Trump administration wants to relax something, it's necessarily made the situation worse. If you actually look at the cost that is added to a car by some of the cafe regulations, those numbers are very, very large. And they feed back to pollution in the following way. You start having very expensive cars. It turns out that the rate of replacement is lower. That means old cars with high emissions remain on the road longer than they should. So it's not even clear uh, that if you constantly regulate new cars, you're going to reduce aggregate level of pollution. It's quite plausible that you will increase it, which means that this thing is doubly perverse. High prices and high pollution. That may be good California policy, but it shouldn't carry the day anywhere else. To your point, Richard, about what air quality and California used to be like. I grew up in the Inland Empire, which is a, a vast kind of exurban area about 60 miles east of Los Angeles. And the, the geography there is such that the prevailing winds blow those emissions from LA into the Inland Empire, which is shaped like a bowl. So it just kind of hangs there. And when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, we would probably 15 to 20 times a year get our phys ed classes canceled because of the air quality outside. <laughs> it was just a, a thick brown kind of pea soup that hung in the valleys there. You, um, would, do, the you would do anything not to exercise. I mean, <laughs> right. I was, I was off smoking. Um, <laughs> speaking of California pathologies, John, the president has been banging the drum about homelessness in California for a while now, especially focusing on San Francisco and Los Angeles. There was a Washington Post story a few weeks ago that said the administration was considering using federal power to clean up Skid Row in L.A. and move homeless people into government facilities. Uh, the president recently said that San Francisco is going to get cited by the EPA for water pollution because of all the waste, specifically the, the used needles. Um, anyone who has been to either one of those cities recently understands that this is a very real problem. This is not something that the president is making up. You're having typhus outbreaks in L.A., for example. But how much power does the federal government, let alone the executive branch acting on its own, have to counter this? Well, you put your finger right on it. A, it's a huge problem. So I, I looked this up. I think a quarter of all homeless people in the country are in California, right? If you were going to be homeless and you were going to live outside, where are you going to go? 
California. So there is a, California is a huge magnet for homeless people. It's a big problem. It's ruining this, you know, the civic life of all these cities, and it's, uh, as you said, leading to disease and crime. But the second thing is the federal government is not there to solve every problem in the world. And I couldn't think of a better example of a problem that really is best answered by state and local governments than homelessness. And the third point I just make quickly is, you know, you should let California, this is one of the points of federalism, is you should let California suffer the consequences of its bad policies. You know, this is this really is a case with homelessness where different states can try different policies and see what works. And I don't see any reason why uh, the federal government should bail out California for policies like that make it right that high taxation that make it expensive to live in California, overly restrictive uh, regulations on land and development of housing. I, I was just saying the other day that my my well temporary hometown of Berkeley. Has, <laughs> Wait a minute. How long have you been there, John? Has, he just wants to go. <laughs> Berkeley has banned. Get this. Berkeley has banned any new home construction from using fossil fuels, natural gas, oil, anything. I mean, it's like, who's going to, not is that going to, that's going to add a lot more now to the cost of a house, but who's going to want to, what developers want to going to build houses and how can any homeless person afford them? Right. So, you know, what's going on is that California and these cities in particular have very strong anti-growth, anti, look, I'm a homeowner. And Berkeley, this is really good for me. This is what drives my housing prices up. So when I get out someday, it's going to make my house worth even more. But we should, California should suffer the consequences of those policies. We're, we, we are preventing the homelessness problem from being solved. I bet that homelessness is not as big a problem. I'd be curious, but I bet it's not as big a problem in areas that have relatively free and easy uh, regulatory processes for building new homes and apartments, like in Texas or Florida, I bet. It's certainly... It is certainly not as difficult there. The, the problem that I see about this is that John is surely right in the short run that you let them stew in their own juices. But remember, many innocent Californians are going to be taken down by these excessive policies. The other thing that I start to worry about is that you get travels who come to California. They attach a particularly obnoxious disease from somebody who's on Skid Row. They bring it back to Massachusetts and so forth. Um, you've got airplane. You've got further travels. I'm not so sure that it's purely a local problem although it certainly is predominantly a local problem. And, and therefore, I, I have a kind of a mixed reaction to this. Um, my view about California is in a state of immediate and total paralysis on, on just about everything. Uh, why they want to ban the natural gas is because of their views with respect to global warming. Why do they have those clues with respect to global warming? Because they look at all their forest fires and they don't realize that virtually all of them are caused by bad management on public lands and not by any supposed increase in temperature, which has been level over the last several years um, on this situation. They make so many mistakes, it's, it's, it's almost dizzying to try to do it. It's too depressing to talk about in many ways. I do think it's going to become a third world state um, if they're allowed to continue. But I agree with John. Presumptively, the president can't get in there. The question to me is when it is that the people in that state are actually going to understand that everything that they have done as a major innovation is disastrous. John did not mention that they're going to start to impose rent controls. The original cap
gaps are going to be relatively low or relatively non-severe, but it's just a matter of time uh, before they tighten them up and then you get statewide rent control, which will exacerbate the housing problem and the pollution problem and the waste problem and the disease problem even further. I think this show really ought to come to an end because there's no topic more disgusting or depressing to talk about than California. <laughs> the most most California thing ever is that the major disease vectors are the the homeless population and the bougie parents who won't vaccinate their children. That's <laughs> just California in microcosm. I, I know you want to wrap, Richard, but there's one thing I want to ask you guys about real quick as we go out, just because it, it seems like a bigger deal than the amount of press it's generated would suggest. There was a, a recent ruling uh, from the New Mexico Supreme Court which made the the land of enchantment, that's New Mexico's nickname, I always assumed it's just a peyote reference, uh, they are the first state in the union. It always comes to, back to the vaping. It always comes <laughs> back to the vaping. The first state in the union to abolish spousal privilege. Now, as someone who's really going to have to up his game around the house, if this becomes more widespread, I'm directly affected. So, Richard, why don't you explain for us exactly how spousal privilege works and then what you think of what New Mexico is doing here. Uh, well, I mean, there are two kinds of issues. The first one is sort of spousal immunity from tort suits, and that has been abolished virtually everywhere in the United States for a very long time. Um, one spouse can sue another for various kinds of wrong. But there is still everywhere but New Mexico a testimonial privilege in which you cannot require one spouse to reveal the privileges um, in confidence statement to another spouse, marital emphases, and so forth. Now, the ruling is extremely broad because it covers all all civil and all criminal cases. So it's not just a situation where the two spouses are fighting one another. You can get that evidence just about anywhere. Um, why do you do it? Well, the uh, majority opinion, the judge Moore, I think was her name, she says, well, everybody knows that the presumption is all truthful evidence and relevant evidence should come in and that the presumption should be against privilege. And there is some truth to that. Then the justifications are offered. And then she goes into this long feminist account as to why it is that she thinks on balance the privilege is one that tends to favor males in hierarchy as opposed to women, uh, which strikes me as being perhaps mildly plausible if the information is going to be used in a lawsuit between the two parties and highly improbable if it's going to be used in any other kind of situation. No other state has followed it. There was a strong dissent um, in that case also by another female judge. Uh, my guess is it's not going to spread, uh, but I was putting together the final touches on my casebook, and one of my research assistants pointed it out. And I felt duty-bound to put some kind of account of it in to bring the book up to the 21st century. John, I'll give you the final word on this. Well, I, I went to Yale, so though I, I learned no evidence. <laughs> I just didn't <laughs> learn evidence law. It wasn't taught. Wasn't taught. <laughs> I mean, like, not by a faculty member of my two years, so I just learned it for the bar. But the second thing is, like, uh, it's already hard enough for people to get married, isn't it? Like they use, I was talking to these younger people this last week. I mean, they have to use computer programs to match people. Now, I don't know how Troy met his wife. There's a computer program. I don't know how he got these free Greek trips out of it, but I bet it wasn't a computer program that matched you up. But it's hard enough that people rely on computer programs now to help them with dates. The one reason I always thought there was a marital uh, privilege, uh, testimonial privilege was that the uh, the country, the society wants to encourage people to get married, and now we're just making it yet again 
harder to get married. So I say if we get rid of the marriage privilege, let's get rid of all the other ones too. Like, why do we have the priest-penitent uh, confessional privilege? Uh, we got attorney-client, and we've got uh, doctor-patient. Let's ruin all the other relationships too. <laughs> Just make them all even, all on the same playing field. But that's that's my point is, you know, the reason we have all these, they're common law, right? They're not, they weren't strictly created by statute, if I remember no. That's correct. Like, but that's, I just remember that from the bar. I didn't learn that at Yale again. Mm-hmm. But so it's all really just a policy choice to uh, encourage certain kinds of, certain kinds of uh, relationships in society. And you would think given all our worries about population growth and blah, 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 as a social disintegration, you would think that we would try to be doing everything we could to have pro-family formation policies. Good for John. All right, fellas. That is our show. Gentlemen, thank you as always. Thanks to our producer, Scott Emmergut, to the Hoover Institution, and of course, thanks to our great listeners, as well as the people with vision problems who just thought they were downloading Car Talk. Remember to help us out by rating the show at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. Okay, guys, I've got to run off for dinner. All right, fellas. Dinner. Good for you. podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.